The True Crime Society podcast contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. guys welcome to another episode of true crime society podcast with stephanie and olivia it's thursday september 22nd right now um we are here we're ready to go it's a little chilly out for the weather it rained today for the first time well i guess it's rained a few times on and off but i think we're still in a drought but tomorrow i think today's the first day of fall here and it's finally starting to feel chilly which is nice nice change for you guys yeah Mm, it's still raining here. I feel like it's always raining, <laughs> but at least it's getting warmer, um, which is nice. It's like light jacket weather now, not big coat weather. <laughs> this weekend, I'm going like three hours upstate to our friend's cabin, and I was looking at the weather, and the low is going to be like 30-something degrees. Mm. That's like freezing. Like It's winter. It's so cold. It's so nice I'm to a- rug up and... That's the one good thing about when it is really, really cold. At least you're always prepared for it, and it's so nice to be cozy. Yeah, I'm excited to wear, like, cozy clothes. Mm. Um, But it's, like, a cabin, but it's, like, a house. It's not, like, a cabin with no electricity. <laughs> yeah. I guess there's not a lot of cell phone service or anything up there. But I'm starting to feel like a real old person because I've been thinking about, like, stuff to bring for days, and now I'm starting to have anxiety. Like, what if there's not any good snacks or like what if my tummy hurts and like I forgot to bring Tums or what if like I'm really tired and I want to go to bed but everyone else wants to stay up and then they think I'm lame (laughs) all these things you've got to worry about yeah I feel I'm like what if the bed isn't comfy or like what if I'm hot because like I hate being hot when I sleep (laughs) you'll be fine you'll enjoy it you'll get up there and it'll be a great time this is like the life of being an anxious person and also like being in my 30s now where I'm like, I have to remember to pack Tums. I have to remember to bring ibuprofen. It's um, funny how you just get into your own little routine and like, yeah, when yeah. you have to. Yeah, it's weird. I'm like, what if the bed's really loud or like all these stupid things? It's so weird how it happens too as you get older. Like when I was young, I was could sleep anywhere, wouldn't matter. Now I'm like, God, if I'm not in my own bed, I'm awake so early usually. It's, yeah. 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 Now I'm like, do I even want to go? <laughs> I'm like, I yes. do, but I'm just, I hate like feeling uncomfortable. And I'm, I'm yeah. sure it'll be fine, but I'm just always like one of those people that worries a lot. And I have to like plan unknown. to bring literally everything possible that I won't fucking need. Somewhere you've never been before or haven't been for a while. It's always a bit, yeah. Anxiety. Yeah, like I've never been there, so I don't know what it's like. They're buying all the food and stuff, so I don't know what's going to be there. Oh, it'll I be bought- exciting. I bought some Doritos to be safe. <laughs> you won't starve if you've got Doritos. <laughs> I brought some Doritos and some little Cokes. So. <laughs> You're all set. Mm-hmm. You have a big weekend, right? You're- well, yeah, it's spring break here. So my kids finished up on school. It's Friday here now. So they finished up on school um, Wednesday because yesterday we got bonus day off for a national day of mourning for the Queen. Oh, so nice. <laughs> everyone got the day off. So, yep, they're finished now for three and a half weeks. Um, so we're going away next Wednesday night with two other families, um, which will be nice and chaotic. <laughs> and then um, a few weeks after that, we're going to fly into Queensland, which is kind of the state above us where it's warmer. We're staying on the beach 
it'll be nice. And we're going with my whole entire family. So I've got two brothers. They've got they've got partners and children, and my my parents. So a big group. It'll be yeah, fun fun for all the kids, especially. That's fun. Mm, hopefully, just praying praying for nice weather because there's nothing worse than being stuck in like a hotel room when it's pouring rain. I know uh, that. I told you when I went away this year, the weather was like great, but yes. last year when it went, it rained literally the whole time. Mm. I feel worst. like it's, it's uh, like I could handle that if it was just me, but when you have to entertain kids, <laughs> it's not very fun. <laughs> it depends where you are. Like, yeah. When we go to Vermont, we usually go in the fall, so it's like cold outside anyway, so you don't really want to be outside. But when we go to Vermont, we just go to like, breweries and do like inside stuff but then when I go to North Carolina I'm like I'm literally here to go to the beach beach. or to go to the pool (laughs) and it's gonna fucking rain yeah the worst always the way yeah and we're also still annoyed because we're still shadow banned on Instagram a lot of you will message us and tell us like I'd literally type in your name and you don't come up and we know it's really annoying we lost our appeals to Instagram which it's still total bullshit. Like, it makes me so annoyed. I wish that there was a phone number you could call because even though I hate making phone calls, I would, would call someone. It's um like because, you know, I get that they need guidelines and sometimes you think, oh, okay, maybe that was a deserved kind of removal. But literally all this was was two photos of the Memphis shooter from a few weeks ago, just his face. Like it wasn't even on the day. It was just like a driver's license photo or something like that. And we shared a post from the Memphis Police Department that was what was removed as we were twice um like yeah twice inciting like dangerous inciting behavior. violence like. yeah yeah and promoting you know violent behavior so they took it down we requested appeal they closed it i'm pretty sure they didn't even review it well and then they say in the thing it's like oh we get so many requests that we have like robots do this it's like okay yeah. well your robots are fucking stupid first of all <laughs> and then i try like that actually pissed me off so much i looked up the oversight board i'm like i'm taking this further but when you look at it it's like you can write your appeal. That should take around 10 minutes. And then we select a handful each month, even though we get thousands. So I'm like, what like fuck the you. Point? There's just no accountability. That's what gets me. It bugs me. I feel like I always bitch about it, but there is no It wouldn't annoy me if they just took it down and it did affect our account, but yeah. like, we're definitely shouting. Even if I look for True Crime Society from my ins- personal Instagram yeah. that's connected, it like doesn't come up. Even when I type in True Crime Society as a whole, it lists 50 other things that are not True Crime Society and then we're right at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> but um, a few people have actually asked today what is shadow banning. It's basically when you're not – your account is still active but they make it really hard for people to find you. Like kind people of have to like, actively seek out yeah. your account. It's kind of like a slap on the wrist type punishment thing, you know, it's not as bad as obviously getting your account removed, but they just make it really, really super hard for you to get any it's like exposure. The algorithm suppresses you. Yeah. So we don't – with some people – like I'll still come up at the top of our story feed usually from my account, but then when I try to search for us, I can't find us. Yeah, it's so, so. dumb. It's such a dumb system. And it's also dumb because – I told you this, but, you know, Instagram and Facebook are the same company, Meta. And the other day I was like browsing someone who I went to high school with's profile, just being like, oh, what's this asshole up to? And I was like looking through their pictures and stuff. And they posted a meme that had the F word in it referring to gay people. And so I was feeling petty and I reported it as like hate speech. And it told me it was fine. It was like, oh, we have robots and our robots deem that this doesn't go against our community standards. I'm like, okay, so saying the F word, which is like clearly hate speech against homosexuals is fine. Yeah. But I can't post a picture from the Memphis Police Department. 
even the shooting, like the actual shooter went live on Facebook and that video <laughs> remained up for days and days and days. But we so post that, this picture. That's fine. And we're inciting yeah, violence. A smiling picture of his face, we're inciting violence. And another one we got for inciting violence on Facebook was, I think people were talking about like charges or what charges someone get and someone wrote <laughs> murder for both of them or murder for them both and then it got deleted for inciting violence. And it was even funny because they even did a star, like instead of writing murder, they wrote M star. Star. Uh, like yeah. to try and kind of hide it. <laughs> it clearly didn't work. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's like a, It's ridiculous. Yeah. So if you ever can't find us, just try extra hard. Sometimes if you like unfollow us and then refollow us, it kind of like pushes us back into like your algorithm at least. And someone else um, said that something that is kind of important for people to do is just interact with the post. So even if you just yeah. like it, you don't have to comment. But if you do that, then it kind of pushes us back up in the algorithm as well. Yeah. So just try to interact in some ways. <laughs> Maybe we'll do we'll do like a stupid poll so people like vote on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So today we are going to talk about one of our most popular, I guess, subjects of it always being the husband or partner. But it's just more, I don't want to say more fun. It's just, it's just easier to say it's always the husband. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they're just a boyfriend or a partner, though. But we, we you know what we mean. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I can't be like, it's always the husband slash boyfriend slash partner slash significant other <laughs> slash ex. Yeah, exactly. Today, we are going to cover cases about women who were most likely murdered by their partners. They're not all finalized, so we'll say most likely, even though usually pretty much all of them, well, only in the first one, it's still kind of up in the air, I guess, right? Um. Well, Yeah. What we've basically out of the three women, we have one body. The other two are still missing, but mm -hmm. I feel like it's very clear what happened to both of the two missing women that we're going to discuss. Yeah, so we are going to talk about Irene Gakwa, uh, Karina Castro, and Maya Miliete. So these are ones actually a lot of people sent these cases in wanting us to cover them. A lot of you have been following them. Um, Irene's an interesting one because she's originally from Kenya and she moved here. So her family's still over there. So it's kind of hard for them to like get super involved. Karina, she was actually like beheaded by her, I guess, partner, ex-partner, but with a sword, which is horrific. And beheaded and, on the street in full yeah. view of everyone. Like it wasn't even in their home. I just can't even believe that that happened. It's mind-blowing. It gives me chills. Yeah. So horrible. And, um, and Maya was one that a lot of people are interested in because the, there's spell casting involved, shrines. It's got a, a lot of twists to it. So yeah. rank into all of those so everyone will know what's going on when you see us talking about these online. So we're going to start with Irene Gakwa. Irene Gonka thrived after her move to America, splitting time living with her brothers, making friends, taking classes to be a nurse. Then she met a man on Craigslist. It seemed okay. At the time, everything seemed okay. And I didn't really know Nathan, but I told him, hey, if you're going to date my sister, I really you know, need to know more about you. And it's going to take a time or two to hang out. Kennedy Wynina learned that in the summer of 2021, Irene moved with Nathan Heitman to Wyoming. 
and the couple was engaged. Then, he says, Irene's texts started to raise concern. So we're from Kenya, and sometimes we mix English and a language called Swahili. We mix a word of English to words of Swahili. So I can tell that was her. But then on March 5th, I text her and ask her something, and she texts back in English, like plain English. So now that I know what I know, maybe it wasn't her. But Wainaina is desperate to know more. Heitman told police Irene packed clothing into two plastic bags and announced that she was leaving Gillette, Wyoming, then got into a dark-colored SUV and left the area. I think that's false. That's a false story. That's just, you know, something he was just saying. Irene Gakwa is a 32-year-old woman who has been missing from Gillette, Wyoming since around late February, early March 2022. So it's been a while. It's not like this is a super recent one. So six months-ish at the time that we're recording, yeah. Yeah, not a great sign. Um, So Irene is a Kenyan woman who moved to the U.S. in 2019 so that she could work in healthcare. Her parents still live in Kenya, but two of her brothers actually live in Meridian, Idaho. Her father, Francis Cambo, said in an interview, she's always been a daddy's girl. He also said she was supposed to come home for Christmas this year. I was going to buy her the ticket myself if she couldn't afford it. So Irene is a very petite woman. She is around five foot and she only weighs about 90 pounds. So she's very small. Her parents have told the media that they are worried about her moving to America. They said, we sometimes had to remind her to get out of the house and get some sunlight. But we decided since her brothers are there, why not? When Irene first arrived to the U.S., she lived with her brother, Chris Munga, and his wife, Joyce Abadi. Her sister-in-law said that Irene is a sweet, fun-loving person who started her mornings with a cup of tea and enjoyed cooking, shopping, and watching Nigerian movies. She said she's such a free spirit, so caring, goofy, and she just goes with the flow. The two women became very close, and they took a girl's trip to L.A. in 2020. It was on this trip that Irene told Joyce that she was dating a man named Nathan Heitman. Joyce has said that Irene spent a lot of time talking to Nathan on the phone, but she, she didn't share many details about their relationship. So not too much is known about their relationship by anyone, really. It seems like she didn't talk about it much. Um, we know that they met on Craigslist at some point in 2020. And according to Irene's family, the couple had a rocky relationship and broke up several times. According to CNN, her family were under the impression that as of 2022, the couple had split for good, but it seems that might not have been the case. Um, we tried to find out more online about Nathan, but we couldn't really find anything about him. Um, he was 39 years old at the time of her disappearance. They first moved in together in Meridian, and then Irene started nursing school at the College of Western Idaho there. According to a timeline on a website that her family made to put information about her disappearance. It's wheresirene.com. The timeline says the couple moved together to Gillette, Wyoming in July 2021. So following the move, Irene transferred her studies to Gillette Community College, and her father has said that he would sometimes ask Irene if she ever wanted to return to Kenya. And he said, she'd tell me, Dad, I'm good. I have my own life now. After her move to Wyoming, Irene would return to visit her family in Meridian often, her final visit was Thanksgiving 2021. She went to the home of her brother. They all made their favorite African delicacies, including goat barbecue, jollof rice, and ugali, a form of cornmeal popular in Kenya. Irene's specialty was cabbage with tomatoes. Her mother had made it for the family when they were growing up, and she taught Joyce how to make it during this Thanksgiving trip. 
The last time that Irene Stanley spoke to her face-to-face was via a video call on February 24th, 2022. Her father said that something seemed off during the call. He said that he teased Irene that she looked hungry and tired. He told CNN that her smile was more subdued and her normally neat braided hair was unkempt. Irene told Francis, her father, that she was exhausted and his advice for her was, make sure you drink hot milk and relax. Hot milk sounds disgusting. Oh, no, like, yeah. I feel like that's a thing that older people say or like warm people who grew up like if it in just the said 50s warm, or something. Warm milk would sound less disgusting. Hot milk? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'd still never have warm milk. I'd, have, <laughs> I'd only have cold milk. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Irene usually spoke to her parents every other day, and by late February, her parents began to worry when she didn't answer any of their video calls. Someone using Irene's phone did send some texts to her family, though, but they thought they were kind of weird, so it seems like maybe it wasn't actually her. Instead of the mix of Swahili and Kenyan slang Irene usually texted in, the messages were in stilted English, like someone was using Google Translate to send them, and that's according to her older brother. Her father said the text would be out of place. In early March, between the last video call and the day she was reported missing, her parents received some short WhatsApp messages from her account. Some made excuses for why she wasn't doing video calls. So one message said, Dad, I dropped my phone in the water and now the microphone doesn't work. And another said, I just want you to know I love and miss you, Mom. Her father responded, We miss you. We want to see you, not just chat on WhatsApp. We love you always. You will be my daughter forever. We've read some conflicting dates of the last message that Irene sent, but it seems like it was most likely around March 4th. Um, Her phone records were later looked at. This was the last day that her phone was found to be active at all. So on March 8th, 2022, Irene's WhatsApp account was deleted. Her phone number was disconnected two days later on March 10th. It's kind of interesting. I wonder how they know that if her phone wasn't active after March 4th. Maybe when you, because sometimes when you call a phone, it's just off you at the voicemail, but then maybe when it's disconnected and you call it, it says like, this number is not in service. Yeah. So Irene's family filed a missing report on March 20th, 2022. Um, Her family started their own investigation into her disappearance. Irene and her two brothers shared a cell phone plan. So thankfully, they were able to access her phone records pretty quickly. They contacted one of Irene's friends, and that's how they found out that she was actually still living with Nathan at the time that she disappeared. A police officer interviewed Nathan on March 20th, the day that the missing person report was filed, and he told the officer he last saw Irene in late February. His story was that she came home one night, packed her clothing in two plastic bags, and she left in a dark-colored SUV. According to court documents, Nathan changed her banking passwords and deleted her Gmail account. All the changes were made to her own IP address associated with Nathan, and they were all made after the date he told police Irene moved out. Not sus at all. Yeah, I know. And they never come up with a good story. It's always like, I don't know, she just up and left. Mm. So according to an affidavit that came out about the case, um, it says this would indicate it was Nathan Heitman accessing Irene's account, removing money and changing the password to deny access to Irene. These transactions began on February 25th and continued through March 2022. So when police spoke to neighbors of Nathan and Irene, it was discovered that Nathan purchased a 55-gallon drum on February 24th. This was the last day that Irene spoke to her family. The neighbors saw him burning the drum the following day. Also, not suspicious mm. at all. On February 25th, 2022, Nathan used her credit card to buy a shovel, boots, and jeans from Gillette Walmart. He told police he hadn't heard from her since. He also said he withdrew the money from her bank account so she would be forced to contact him if she needed money. Hmm. Yeah. 
He took over $3,000 from one bank account and maxed out her credit card by spending $3,200 on it. Um, more info from the affidavit says he allegedly transferred money from her account eight times for a total of $3,666.46. Irene's brothers contacted Nathan multiple times to try to get her belongings back from him, but I'm guessing that didn't work out. And Nathan is also thought to be in possession of her passport. Police have said that Nathan is considered a person of interest in her disappearance and that he has not made himself available to detectives looking to resolve questions that exist in the investigation. Um, Gillette Police Detective Dan Stroop told CNN, We believe he has information pertaining to the disappearance of Irene, but he has elected not to provide that information to law enforcement at this time. So on May 10th, fast forward a bit, the Gillette Police Department arrested Nathan and charged him with two felony counts of theft and one felony count of unlawful use of a credit card, two felony counts of crimes against intellectual property. They said that Irene is the victim of these crimes. They also asked the public to provide information. They said detectives continue to process information obtained through tips, leads, and searches. Detectives are asking the public for any information concerning a gray silver-colored Subaru Crosstrek with Idaho license plates, which may have been seen trespassing on private property or appearing out of place in rural areas of Campbell County between February 24, 2022 and March 20, 2022. <laughs> the Gillette Police Department is also requesting information regarding the possibility of a 55-gallon metal drum, which may have been burned and or abandoned within the county. Police have issued over 24 search warrants in the case to date. Interesting that they can't find the metal drum either. Like, it's not like he just left it at the house. Yeah, I guess it seems like a very rural area. So he could have literally dumped it anywhere. But, but it's like if he, was, if he was burning like leaves or something, like why would he have gotten rid of it, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, police and Gillette made this statement on May 11th. They said... Information obtained through investigations suggests Irene went missing under suspicious circumstances. Irene's two brothers have been traveling to Wyoming from Idaho regularly to search for their sister. This info about their search comes from CNN. It says they visited morgues and hospitals. They've checked shelters for unhoused people. They've launched a website, whereisirene.com. They've asked local authorities to check whether she joined the U.S. military, which was an idea she briefly entertained. Some residents of Gillette, a city of 32,000 in northeastern Wyoming, have rallied to find her, wearing t-shirts that read, Where's Irene? They've hosted weekend search parties in Canvas neighborhoods seeking permission to put up missing person signs. It's not unusual to see images of Irene posted in the neighborhood where she lived with her boyfriend. Stacy Coaster, who lives in Gillette, has been organizing searches with a group of local women, said no family should ever have to go to bed at night wondering where their loved one is. They've mapped out areas to search and marked off where they've already looked so they don't cross over the same place twice. Um, she also said, We promised her father and her brothers that we'll never stop searching until we bring her home or they have answers. That's our goal. We are their family here in Gillette. Stacy and other neighbors also have gathered outside Heitman's home holding signs and chanting, Nate, where's Irene? Irene's 33rd birthday was in July 2022. Her nephew said that they thought if they threw her a birthday party, she would come home. Sad. <laughs> Very sad. The family held a vigil for Irene over Zoom. One friend said during the vigil, whether we meet in this life or the next, know that you are absolutely loved. Irene's sister-in-law, Joyce, has spoken about how her kids are handling their aunt's disappearance. She said, my children don't understand why she is not calling them, how she just disappeared. Sometimes I just imagine her walking through the door and saying, why are you looking for a grown woman like me? 
as the days go by and nothing happens, we don't know what to do. And her father said, I just want to know the truth. I'm still hopeful, but my hope is dwindling. Francis, the father, has said that he and his wife pray for Irene every night. He is the voice for the family as Irene's mother is too distraught to face the media. He said, she was my only daughter. I spoiled her and she took advantage of that. She had not introduced Nathan to me. That's what kills me. Some days he's optimistic she'll make it home for Christmas, but most days not so much. So Nathan was originally due in court on September 8th for a pretrial hearing, and this was postponed and rescheduled to November 3rd. Nathan has pled not guilty to two counts of theft, two counts of crimes against intellectual property, and unlawful use of a credit card, all felonies. And he has been freed on a $10,000 bond. One kind of other little interesting piece in this case is that Stacey Coaster, who's kind of leading the search for Irene, was actually taken to court by Nathan. He tried to get a protective order against her, but the judge ruled in Stacey's favor. Um, Stacey said, I think he's worried that we're closing in on him by sharing Irene's story so much. And basically he alleged that Stacey Coaster had been stalking him. And the judge said, I can't find that, sir. You met your burden of proof to prove that an act of stalking occurred in this case. So that's one kind of good thing that everyone, like I think like everyone knows that he probably, you know, very, very likely did this and they're not playing games with him, which is good. Yeah, good good for them. Good for her being proactive. Yes, definitely. So that's that one. And next we're going to talk about Karina Castro. One big horrible nightmare. Breaking down in disbelief, Martin Castro Jr. returns to the spot where his 27-year-old daughter, Karina Castro, was murdered. I keep coming out of here. I can't stay away from here. It's been a mess. San Mateo County Sheriff's detectives say Jose Landetta killed her near Laurel Street and Magnolia Avenue in San Carlos Thursday. Her dad says she leaves behind two children, age seven and one, who still don't know what happened to their mother. She was an amazing girl. You're the great mom. She was my, my daughter. Castro says the pair had a rocky relationship and Lindetta was violent. He says his daughter even filed a protection order last month. On Thursday, investigators say witnesses first reported an assault in progress. And when they arrived, deputies found Castro killed with a stabbing instrument or edged weapon. That weapon has since been recovered. So she was 27 years old at the time of her murder. She had two young daughters, aged seven and one, and she was working as a DoorDash driver to provide for her family. Karina attended Menlo Atherton High School, where she got her GED. I think I skipped where this was from. It was um, in the Bay Area of California that this happened. So her grandmother, Danielle Gannon, says that Karina was an independent woman who was motivated to raise her two daughters on her own. Karina had been in a tumultuous relationship with Jose Rafael Solano Landeta, more commonly known as Rafa Solano. So we'll just refer to him as Rafa. He was 33 years old at the time of the murder, and he is the father of Karina's youngest child. So in April 2022, Karina sought a restraining order against Rafa. Her father, Marty Castro, told ABC7 how he took every chance to try to stop her from seeing him. He said, every time I saw her, I would beg her, don't talk to him, leave him. Um, he said, it seemed, it seemed like the more I did that, the more she would see him. So it seems like the family knew that he was not a great guy. Yeah. 
Karina's grandmother, Danielle, has said that Rafa is a diagnosed schizophrenic on medication. Um, she claimed that he would use that as an excuse for his behavior. Grandmother said he drank excessively and you're not supposed to do that on that kind of medication. On the day before Karina's murder, she and Rafa exchanged some very heated messages on Snapchat. Karina apparently threatened to tell everyone about Rafa's criminal record that includes rape, a rape conviction involving a minor. He calls her snitch lip and warns her, fuck around and find out. Karina wrote back, you want to put a target on my back? Your homie's going to know the real you. And she threatened to expose his sexual relationship with another man. Then she added, dude, go ahead, try and take my ass out. On the morning of Thursday, September 8th, 2022, Rafa went to Karina's home where her two children were inside. Karina's father, Marty, said he got really mad. He went to the trunk of his car, pulled out whatever it was, and killed her right there behind the car. The San Mateo County's Sheriff's Department said that the crime happened in the 300-400 block of Laurel Street and Magnolia Avenue at 11.50 a.m. Reports started to come in that said a woman's head was cut off by a sword. At 12.14 p.m., another call came in and said children are there, scared to come, want their mom. From all reports, thankfully, the kids were inside the house during this and didn't actually witness the murder, thank God. Imagine, like that would have been just an extra horrible piece. When you think it can't get any worse, that would have been worse. Yeah, like I don't, even as an adult, I couldn't imagine seeing something like that. Never mind as a small child and it's your mom. A neighbor named Chapel Thornborn said the head was underneath the car and she was laying in back of the car, just severed, and then they covered her up. They also said, after he cut her head off, he came walking up, him and his two friends, and they walked right by me, and then they arrested him. He was hurt, shocked, disappointed, he added about the suspect. The guy, the guy who just beheaded her was hurt, shocked, and disappointed? Seems like a weird yeah, thing know. to say it's about weird. him. Yeah. Police held a press conference and said, quote, they arrived within minutes and found an obviously deceased female in the street in that area. They began to work the scene, and shortly after that, the male suspect arrived back at the scene and was quickly detained by sheriff's deputies. He was later placed under arrest for homicide. We can confirm that a stabbing instrument was used in the commission of the crime, and that weapon is still outstanding. Karina's family were not told of her murder, and her father saw on the news that a woman was murdered in that area, and he raced to the scene fearing it could have been his daughter. He said, when the deputy walked up, he would not confirm who it was, but I said that she owned the, blacks vo- the black Volkswagen. He said, yeah, that's, that's required. That's my daughter. Karina's two children had been taken from the scene by CPS, and her pets had also been removed from the home. Karina's father and grandmother have to go through the application process to get custody of the children. Uh, Danielle is the grandmother. She said, I want those girls. That's what I want first. Then I want Rafa to fry in jail. I don't care what happens to him. Um, the father, Karina's father, told KGO, if there's somebody out there abusing your daughter, don't take off. Don't let it go. Don't take no for an answer. You feel responsible no matter what anyone says. There's a GoFundMe that has been established to support Karina's daughters. Marty, the father, he wrote on the GoFundMe, I just want to thank everyone who's donated to help my daughter's kids, my beautiful grandchildren who have lost their mother to a senseless, useless person. Thank you all. This money will help them and help us give my daughter a funeral to remember. I'm devastated, broken, empty, and more hurt than I ever thought I could be by the situation. But thank you all for helping us in the worst time of our lives. On Friday, September 9th, San Carlos Mayor Sarah McDowell was joined by the city council to express their deepest condolences to the two young children. 
They said, yesterday, our community was shocked by the tragic murder of a young mother in our community. Thanks to the quick reaction by neighbors calling 911, San Carlos deputies were able to quickly respond and immediately take a suspect into custody. It appears the victim and the suspect knew each other. Since the murder, we have learned that the weapon used was actually a samurai sword and that Rafa had slashed numerous times, causing the victim's head to be almost severed. He was due to be arraigned on Monday, September 12th, but his attorney asked that the judge asked the judge to allow a doctor to examine his mental fitness, whether he was competent to stand trial. Criminal proceedings have now been suspended until Rafa can be medically examined, according to the district attorney's office. In the meantime, the court has issued a protective order against Rafa to have no contact with Karina's two children, one of them being his. If Rafa ends up being convicted of Karina's murder, he will face a sentence of 26 years to life. Just as a side note, we had a bunch of messages from people sharing that news agencies claim that Rafa was in the country illegally. The Immigration of Customs Enforcement, ICE, told Fox News that they had no involvement with this individual in response to the illegal immigrant claims made by the Santa Monica Observer. So I guess that means he's not? No, he's not. He's in the country legally, according to the customs people. Seems like a very wild statement to make when you actually have no proof of it, which is interesting. Well, some type of people will always try to push that. Yeah. Certain types of people. Yeah. So that's really it with that one as well. Um, I just had a look. There isn't, like, it's been two weeks since the last update, which was pretty much around the time that she was murdered. So this might drag on for a little while based on the evaluations and things that they have to carry out. If you think of other cases where the people had to be deemed, like, mentally fit, like Lori Vallow or um, Gannon Stouk's stepmother, it takes a long time. (laughs) Yeah, years sometimes. Mm sad that her family has to like wait around probably yeah okay so the last case we're going to talk about today is the case of missing woman Maya Miliete she has been missing since January 7 2021 from Chula Vista California we've had lots of requests in the past to cover her case um and we're finally getting into it it's been a nightmare for everyone, and not just me, and not just, you know, my husband, but for entire family, you know, as I said, you know, there's a big family. Mary Chris Julier says their large family feared the worst from the start. Some relatives raced to Chula Vista as soon as they heard Maya was missing. When we went to their house the first time, we stayed overnight, and we went back home. We already had a feeling that he might have something to do with my sister's disappearance, and at that time, my heart already shattered. He is Maya's husband, 40-year-old Larry Miliete, father of their three young children. He was arrested in October for murder and illegal possession of an assault weapon. Maya's disappearance nine months earlier was on the same day she had called a divorce attorney. During a large family camping trip the week before, she mentioned her divorce plan to a few relatives, along with an ominous comment. You know, if anything happens to me, it'll be Larry. And she did warn us to just get ready. It's going to be a messy divorce. So we'll start with some background into her life. She was born as Maya, or she's also known as May Tabalanza. She was born on May 1, 1981. She's a Filipino-American and she was born in the Philippines but was raised in Hawaii. So as she was growing up, she attended Admiral Arthur W. Radford High School and she later graduated from the University of Hawaii. So Maya met a man named Larry Miliete in high school. He had moved from Hawaii to, San, uh, to Hawaii from San Diego. 
I've read that the reason for him moving there may have possibly been that he was involved in a juvenile gang-related assault in 1997. And I guess the family kind of packed up and started a new life in Hawaii and tried to start fresh. Hmm. Maya worked as a civilian employee for the U.S. Navy. The last job she had before her disappearance was a contract specialist for the Naval Information Warfare Center. So May and Larry married and Larry served in the U.S. Navy for five years. They moved to San Diego together and had three kids. By 2020, their relationship, though, had started to break down. Larry is said to have become controlling and paranoid after he found out that Maya was having an affair. In December 2020, Maya was planning to divorce Larry. Her friends have said that he was physically abusive towards her and that she said she often feared for the safety of their children. So December 2020 was when she decided to formally end the marriage and she was last seen alive on January 7th, 2021. So, you know, the next month after that, which I don't think is any coincidence. Mm -hmm. She was last seen at the home that she'd shared with Larry at around 5 p.m. on January 7th. She had spoken to a divorce attorney earlier that day. This was two days before the family had been due to travel on a planned trip to Big Bear for her daughter's birthday. Her children at the time that she disappeared were aged 4, 9, and 11. So on January 8th, the following day, Maya's family became concerned when they couldn't get in touch with her. They went to the home where Larry told them that Maya had locked herself in a room and that she hadn't come out since the previous day. I guess they really had no choice but to kind of accept this story and they left. But they did come back the next day, January 9, and they forced Larry to open the door. It wasn't surprising that it was empty and that there was no sign of Maya. Maya's sister, Mari Chris, filed a missing persons report that day with the Chula Vista Police Department at 11.18pm, so that's January 9, which is two days after she was last known to be alive. On January 10, um, early in the morning, like I think I read it was about 1am, police officers arrived at Maya's home um, to kind of begin their investigation. Her car was still there and her phone had started going straight to voicemail. The searchers contacted hospitals, jails and morgues, but they found no trace of Maya. And for the next week, many, many people volunteered their time to search for her. There's lots of photos of people searching kind of beaches and similar type areas for Maya. Police did find a video of Larry. In the video, he was backing their black Lexus car into a position at the home where the rear of the car could not be seen on camera. This was on January 8, so the day that Maya was apparently the day after that she was last known to be alive. This is a timeline of what allegedly happened on January 8. At 6.45 a.m., Larry and the four-year-old son drive away from the home. They leave the two older kids there by themselves. Larry left his phone at home and his boss and his father call him wanting to know where he is. 3.29 p.m., so hours and hours and hours later, Larry switches the GPS on to get directions back to their Chula Vista home, which is a drive of 2.5 hours. So it seems like that's a lot of driving. A lot of weird movements going on. Yeah, covered a lot of distance in that day. On January 23rd, 2021, police executed a search warrant at Maya's home, which seems like a very long time since, like that's, you know, almost two weeks basically after she went missing. But yeah. Lieutenant Miriam Fox said that investigators were looking to obtain any evidence and clues to her current whereabouts. And she also said the Chula Vista Police Department's focus will continue to be locating May safe and in good health. Police said at that time that her family had been and continued to be cooperative in the search. So I feel like Larry was semi-cooperative up until this point. Um, We'll get into that a bit more, but they just kind of make a blanket statement about the family. 
On February 4, my sister Mari Chris spoke to the media again and said that Larry, though, had now retained a lawyer and he was no longer cooperating with the investigation. Um, it is believed that Larry never took part in a single search for his wife um, at any point, which I guess speaks volumes in itself. Yeah, always a red flag. Yeah. On February 5, Maya's family appeared at a news conference and begged for help. Her sister said, I'm pleading, anyone out there, please, anybody somewhere somehow might know my sister's whereabouts. Please bring her home. Her kids, they need their mum. Please help us find my sister. Anyone out there, if you have any information at all, please help me help us find my sister. And from the bottom of our hearts, please, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you. So you can kind of tell how desperate they are. The Chula Vista Police Department Chief, Roxana Kennedy, said detectives were working around the clock on the case and that details couldn't be shared because they didn't want to compromise the investigation. Chief Kennedy also said, I want you to know that I am a mother and my children are my world and I know that May's children meant everything to her. I want you to know that every that to hear that May missed her daughter's birthday hit home with many of our officers and our detectives here at this department that are also parents. So her sister spoke to NBC about the last time that she saw Maya. She said, we're actually out there camping right there at the Glamis Dunes last New Year. So January 3rd was the last time that we saw her. She said it was tough to see her sister and Larry on that trip because they'd been having marital problems for the last year. She said they tried to work it out. They did, you know, marriage counselling and we did try to kind of help them to work out their relationship, but it's been on and off. Mari Chris has said that during that camping trip, there was a lot of arguments between Larry and Maya. She said, we sometimes felt uncomfortable about it, but, you know, we were just praying and hoping they would be able to work it out. We didn't see this coming, you know, after that. In April that year, so April 2021, a neighbour came forward with CCTV audio in which eight loud bangs can be heard on the night that Maya vanished. So we've got a clip here about that. Um, Basically, it's insinuated that they are gunshots. Also in that same month, police carried out a search warrant at the home of Larry's aunt and uncle. They took guns and other evidence from the house, including half a dozen long rifles. So April 7th marked exactly three months since Maya disappeared. Lieutenant Dan Peake said the investigative steps from the department included they'd interviewed interviewed 47 of Maya's family members, friends, neighbours and witnesses. They'd written 12 search warrants, which included homes, cars, cell phones, electronic devices, call detail records, financial records, social media, and cloud data. And they'd reviewed over 40 tips. He said, detectives are reviewing multiple items of evidence and are going over thousands of pages of data in the hopes of finding May. So May 21 marked Maya's 40th birthday. It really hit hard for me this week. Her sister, Mari Chris, told NBC, she said, I'm feeling it more and it's heavier. Mari Chris's husband, Richard, also spoke about the case. He said, I feel like it should have been a homicide a long time ago. This whole her getting up and leaving the kids would never happen. It's just so obvious what's going on. And unfortunately, it's too bad they don't see it that way. 
On May 5, Larry was served with an order, according to the San Diego Sheriff's Department Public Records. He was served with a gun violence restraining order, which is a court order that prohibits the person from having in his or her custody or control, own or possess or receive any firearms or ammunition while the order is in effect. So basically he can't have a gun, he can't have bullets, he can't have any ammunition. Can't be near a gun. (laughs) Yeah. Basically they were granted this order because they believed Larry posed a significant danger of either causing personal injury to himself or another person by having or controlling a firearm essentially. I have read that a a part of this restraining order was because apparently Larry's children knew the passcode to the gun safe and that there was also a photo taken by Larry which showed the four-year-old son standing on a table surrounded by guns. So, Hmm. It's a good way to get a gun restraining order. Yeah. So on May 7th, police executed another search warrant at Larry and Meyer's home. Officers were seen loading things into the back of a van parked in the driveway while other officers led dogs around the property. What appeared to be rifles and boxes that are used to store ammunition were seen being loaded into police vans. They also carried out another search at the home on July 1, 2021. On July 22, 2021, Larry was finally named as a person of interest in Meyer's disappearance. The police said, due to the sensitivity of the case and to protect the integrity of the investigation, we will not be providing additional information at this time. On September 8th, 2021, there are some family court documents that came out and they show that there were issues between Larry and Maya's family. Uh, Maya's parents asked for visiting rights with their three grandchildren. On September 2, Larry wrote back a nine-page declaration sharing accusations as to why he does not want them visiting the children. He said that basically the grandfather is a heavy heavy chain smoker and Larry also wrote, her father does not speak English very well and has never shown any interest with bonding with the children. And apparently he also said that he doesn't care if the children ended up living on the streets, which I doubt that happened, but that's what Larry's story is. It's also just not funny or I mean like ironic's the right word, how like he's saying all this stuff when he's literally probably a murderer. Yeah. He's like, well, I don't want them to see my kids because he's a heavy smoker. It's like, dude, yeah. you murdered someone. If that's the worst thing that you, like, you know, obviously <laughs> you wouldn't want your child to be around smoke, but yeah, coming from the mouth of a murderer, that's. Yeah. So on September 14, 2021, the gun violence restraining order was set to expire, but it was reissued after the case was granted stipulated continuance. A new hearing date was set for December 1. On November, no- oh sorry, on October 19, 2021, Larry was arrested for the murder of Maya. Police released a statement and they said, Today, the Chula Vista Police Department is announcing the arrest of Larry for the murder of his wife, May. San Diego County District Attorney Summer Stevens said that Larry was facing two charges. Count one, she said, was alleged that Larry had killed Maya in violation of Penal Code 187, which is murder. The second count had to do with the illegal possession of an assault rifle. So on October one, October 21, 2021, Larry pled not guilty. He was held without bail. A week later, October 27th, a criminal protective order was issued preventing Larry from contacting his three children. The Deputy District Attorney, Christy Bowles, told the court that since his arrest, Larry had made 129 phone calls to his parents' home where the children were living. So that's in the space of like 12 days or something like that. The deputy DA said at least nine hours of calls, which were recorded, take place with the children. So there's been a lot of back and forth in court regarding the custody of Maya's children. In November 2021, a judge deferred a decision after Mary Chris sought temporary custody, and basically she wants to have the kids permanently. 
It was ruled at the time that the children should stay with Larry's parents, but the judge did give visitation rights to Maya's family. The judge also ordered Larry's parents to find mental health care providers for the children. Larry's parents have been given temporary guardianship of the children. As far as I can tell, that was kind of meant to be up in April 2022, but I haven't seen any real updates on that. I'm assuming this is still all going through the courts. So since Maya disappeared, we have learned that in December 2020, Larry was getting increasingly panicked about, I guess, their relationship breakdown, and he decided to try and cast a spell or a hex on Maya. Authorities found one message to a spell caster in which Larry wrote, please punish May and incapacitate her enough so that she can't leave the house. It's time to take the gloves off. And he also messaged another this another spellcaster and said, can you hex to have her hurt enough that she would need to depend on me or need my help? She's only nice to me when she needs me or is sick. Thanks again. Maybe an accident or a broken bone. <laughs> so I wonder if the spellcaster can get spellcaster can get in trouble, like assisting in murder almost. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. Be- also, where do you find a spellcaster? I guess you can find anything. I'd love internet. to see his Google searches. Can I just pretend to be a spellcaster? <laughs> yeah, you could make some money. Seems like there's a lot of desperate people out there. And I could catch some criminals. Like if they start messaging you about like shady shit, I'd just be like nine one one. So um, Larry did create a kind of really weird, creepy shrine for Maya in their house. That's so gross. So. I'll put a photo on the blog, but basically there's a photo of it looks like it's him and Maya. The photo's on the ground and then surrounding it there's candles. It looks like blood. I don't know. They literally look like tampons with blood on them. Yeah, it does. Candles? I don't know. I don't know what they are. Or rocks? I don't know. I don't know. Like they're kind of like white. Tampon-shaped white things. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what they are. But it looks like there's blood, four candles surrounding it. It's very cauldron. Yeah, basically, it's yeah. There is a cauldron in the back, and then like two wood sticks tied together. I think it just looks Maybe. like if you came across that, you'd be like, "What is going on here?" It's not like just like a nice little photo in a frame that you know. It looks creepy. It's like something you'd see in like a shitty horror movie. Yeah. So they did release some information about Larry's internet searches. He researched prescription. Prescription strength sedatives like Rohypnol that were capable of quickly incapacitating those who ingest them. In December of 2020, Larry conducted a search titled "My Wife Doesn't Want Me to Touch Her," and then he searched for he searched for flunitrazepam, Rohypnol, and diphenhydramine. Diphenhydramine. Okay, that's like um <laughs> yeah, I like, it's like Benadryl, isn't it? Yeah, Benadryl. I think. So that's kind of up to date for Maya's case as of now. As of the end of September 2022, she is still missing. Um, I don't know where what Larry's done with her. I'm, I am think it's pretty clear that he did something when he took the four-year-old in the car for the hours and hours of driving. He probably disposed of her body somewhere along the way then. I feel like there, I've been talking about a lot of cases lately, and even on the podcast, where the body's not found. It makes me so annoyed. There's two this one. The last one with Lynette. Dawson, yeah, like her body hasn't been found. Makes me so frustrated. Jennifer Dulos still not found. Just another one that annoys me. Just as kind of an add-on to that, I posted on our Instagram too that in New South Wales, where I live, the state, they're actually looking to introduce a law that means no body, no parole. So if you are Such convicted a of a murder, there is no chance of you getting out earlier unless you tell them where the body is. Which is, you know, I think it's a great step. Yeah, because there's literally no incentive for them to tell yeah. otherwise. 
Um, so we will keep you updated on all of these cases if Irene is found, if Maya is found, and what happens with the kind of court proceedings for Karina's case. I did find some interesting stats from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime about basically family violence and the murder of females. It said some 47,000 women and girls worldwide were killed by their intimate partners or other family members in 2020. This means on average, a woman or girl is killed by someone in her own family every 11 minutes. There was kind of some talk about the differences in crime between countries and continents. In, on average, Europe has witnessed a 13% decline in gender-related killing of women and girls over the past decade, whereas America has seen an increase of 9%. And in the past, we've also kind of wondered and spoken about if COVID and lockdowns made an impact on crime, which I would have assumed it absolutely would have because people being stuck together in volatile situations, you wouldn't think it would be good and it would I would have thought it would definitely increase. According to the United Nations, it's still probably a little bit too early to tell if COVID has kind of made an impact on this. It says that the number, annual number of these killings showed an increase of 11% from 2019 to 2020 in Western Europe and 5% in Southern Europe. Um, in Northern America, killing of women and girls increased by 8%. In South America, by 5% and Central America, by 3%. So it says this, these increases were similar to what has happened in the past decade. So it doesn't seem like there's an abnormally large increase based on COVID at this point. I wonder if we can look and see in post or something, maybe um, if they have stats for just like domestic violence against women, because maybe domestic violence could have been worse because we're all trapped at home with each other. But maybe yeah. it's harder to murder people when everything's closed and you can't go anywhere and it's harder to make like a plan. And harder to get supplies to murder yeah. people. And Yeah. Yeah. I feel, yeah, like I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I feel like there's probably less murder these days anyway because it's so much easier to get caught with DNA, phone records. Yeah, it's true though because like now you can track so many things. Like even in, what were we, were we just talking about where, or I was just reading about where Sirius XM tracked the car? Yeah, what that was, was that? wasn't that the lady who Venmoed oh, the yeah, daughter yeah, of money? Oh, yeah, that, that's another friggin' weird one. Nikki well, did a, a blog. I'll just find the lady's name. Hold that on. was the one I sent you like yeah. before. Um, Collier's last name. Uh, yeah. So a woman called Deborah Collier was reported missing in, on September 10, 2022 in Athens in Georgia. And basically it says that she sent her daughter a Venmo payment for $2,385 along with a message that said, they're not going to let me go. Love you. There is a key to the house in the blue flower pot by the door. But then, yeah, they found her car because it had serious XM radio XM on was it. able to kind of like track where about her car was that was and how they ended up finding the car and her body wasn't like too far from the car that's a very weird one too maybe we could do an episode on it depending what information comes out yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens yeah just weird that if she was abducted like but had her phone and could venmo yeah there's something weird or going on with that case yeah um but yeah i think that's about it yeah, so everything will be on the blog, truecrimesocietyblog.com. If you want to learn more about any of the cases, we'll, there'll be a link in the show notes if it's easier for you to do it that way. You can follow us on Instagram, True Crime Society. Mine is Steph Sum underscore. Olivia's is TCS Olivia. They're in the True Crime Society bio if you forget. You can leave us a review on Apple. A lot of you actually did leave some nice reviews, <laughs> which made us feel so much better. So thank you so much for that. 
But if some of you haven't yet, you can go right over to Apple and do that. Or on Spotify, you can leave a rating. Check out our sponsor for this episode, Apostrophe. And also, we talked about last time our June's Journey contest. So there's still a few more days to do that. If you want to try to beat our scores, you can go to our Facebook or Instagram and just comment your score and your username there. And June's Journey will give you a, a cute little thing for your island. And if you can, share the podcast, share it on your Instagram stories, Facebook, whatever. Tell a friend about it. It's a big help to us when you guys do that. And I think that's everything. Thanks for listening. Be nice to each other. Look out for each other. All that. Save a life if you can. <laughs> and, and that's it. Peace out. See ya. See ya.